Good morning, Journey Church, uh, here and abroad. We're glad that you are with us today, uh, whether you're in person, which is great to see so many here, and we know we have some folks who are joining us online. It's good to, good to have them with us, uh, good to have you with us uh, in this time together. Uh, we're going to wrap up a series that we've been in for now, but next week, I'm going to begin a new series on the topic of gender. And I know that is a really sensitive subject in our world today, and one that uh, maybe you're pretty clear on, but our world seems to be kind of confused. So we're going to talk about that uh, for about three weeks and uh, just tell you what the Bible has to say and uh, just really be honest about that and loving, kind as well, compassionate, but also uh, truthful to God's Word. So uh, glad that you've joined us today. Hope you come back next week uh, as we uh, continue this series. Um, you know, in the mid-1800s, there was a man in Europe named Karl Marx. And uh, Karl Marx was probably pretty known for the philosophy he espoused, and that was Marxism, right? But he was kicked out, excommunicated from several countries, but he ended up in England, in London, and he promoted, obviously, the philosophy, the social philosophy of socialism. And really, socialism is the um, uh, legal or the forced distribution of wealth, which leads eventually to communism. Uh, But Marx saw this as a matter of the haves versus the have-nots. And so we added an element of uh, violence. That's what Marxism is as opposed to just socialism, saying that if the government wouldn't go along with it, then uh, there should be uh, an overthrow of the government by bloody revolution. And so he espoused that teaching, and, uh, but he was opposed by a really powerful force, uh, the force of God, basically it was. It was a church that was led by men like Charles Spurgeon, who was a pretty well-known uh, Baptist minister at the time, and William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. And both of these guys preach forgiveness, they preach love, they preach hope and meaning, which is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And even though Europe is um, not known to be a Christian nation at this point, back then they had a strong church, and the church held back the evil forces of, of Marxism, and it was, it was quelched. Later on, though, a man named Antonio Gramsci took up the socialism banner But he viewed Marx's approach as being too simplistic. He said it's not just the have and the have-nots. He said instead there are certain power structures or pillars of society that we have to think about. And he talked about the family, education, government, morality, churches, the law, and civil society. He says it's not a simplistic thing. There are some pillars that hold up society, and each one of these need to be addressed and undermined and controlled in order for socialism to be accepted. And what this is called is called cultural Marxism, a, a, a dealing with the culture. And this is what's been happening in our country for the last 50 to 75 years. If you look at those five pillars, put those back, oh, they're up there now. Uh, no, they're not. Put them back up there if you have them up there. Uh, the pillars we had a second ago, are they on there? They weren't listed? All right, I'm sorry about that. Any rate, those five, those five or six pillars that I had up there, um, this is uh, cultural Marxism addresses and undermines those pillars. And, and they've been weakened to the point that now Marxists are making another run and con- controlling and taking over the country. Weakening these pillars have allowed for the breakdown, think about it, the breakdown of traditional family, the legalization of gay marriage, the violence and the Marxism facet of BLM, the liberal colleges of our day, the universal accusation of systematic racism, 
the promotion of critical race theory and intersectionality, the assignment of oppressors and the oppressed, and the progressive church movement. Each one of those six pillars are slowly being eroded and replaced with socialist trends. And if our country succumbs to this philosophy, it will be the end, first of all, of the United States as we know it, but also the rest of the world will follow us as well. But you know what? Fortunately, there is one thing that's holding back the tide of socialism and Marxism, and that's the church. The church is what stopped it back in the mid-1800s when Marx, Karl Marx was pushing it, and the church is what stands with his finger in the, in the dam, keeping the dam from falling. But if Christianity goes, the whole culture goes. And that's a really big reason why the church is essential. You know, we've been in a series for a few weeks now, three weeks, and we've seen how important the church is. We've talked about the birth, the history of the church. We've seen that the church is a miracle, basically, that the Holy Spirit brought into existence and that God uh, has a special plan for the church. We have seen the history of the church. Our look at the church has assured all of us that the church is really essential to God because it's his creation, his family. The church is essential to Jesus because it's his bride. The church is essential to you and I because it's our family, it's our community that we all need. And the church is the only thing that's going to save the lost world. We have viewed where the church has come from. We talked about how it has survived attacks from without and attacks from within. If you weren't here last week, you'll catch up on that. We've talked about how the church has overcome, as Jesus said, literally the gates of hell. And we've talked about how we as a church, Journey Church, fits into that plan and pattern in our history and, and the people in our past. And you know what I neglected to mention in this service last week is that we had in our service, and I don't, I'm not sure if he's here today or not, but Joe, by, Joe Bob Greider, who was, uh, and his wife Wilma, worship with us on a regular basis. If not, they're online with us this morning. And uh, he was the first um, full-time minister of this church back in 1973, before some of us were even born, probably. So it's probably kind of cool that we have that full circle, and we want to value the people that are a part of our history that got us to where we are. But in the final message of this series today, I want to look at the future of the church. I want to look and see what does, what does it look like down the road. Now, there are some things that we don't know, some things that we don't know. Number one, we don't know how long this world's going to continue. A lot of us think it won't be awfully, too awfully long, the way things are going. But every era has probably felt that way, that the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket, you know. So we're not saying it's over tomorrow. But the reality is that there's going to be a lot the church is going to have to face going forward. Some things we don't know, how long the world's going to stand, what the church will have to face and deal with. But we do know that the final destination of the church is going to be amazing. It's going to be incredible, and that we're going to be a victorious church. We have an awesome future in heaven with our Heavenly Father to look forward to. And that's why we must never, ever lose hope. We must never, ever be discouraged. And I know it's difficult when we feel like that we're fighting up steam. We feel like the church is losing its influence. We feel like less people are coming to church. But guys, that's not, that's not our, uh, our problem. It's God's problem, basically. We can push against that. We can never, ever give up. We've talked about how Jesus planned the church and prepared his disciples to carry on the mission after his return to heaven. 
And even, even as he was doing this, though, he was also assuring them, you're not going to be on your own. Remember, Jesus, they, they were afraid when he started talking about leaving. And Jesus said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you in, in your heart. But the Holy Spirit's going to come in the birth of the church, and he's going to be reside with you. He will give you power. He said, if anything, he'll be better than me because he'll be in, in you all the time, all, all of you, everywhere. But he was also assuring us that one day he was going to come back to bring to an end this earthly kingdom and begin a heavenly kingdom. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom. And he began the kingdom, and now the kingdom is in an era that a lot of people call the church age. This is the church age of the era that, that began when the church began on the day of Pentecost. This is when the mission of the church is left in the hands of Christians. Now, that's a really risky thing to do, to be honest with you. And we all know how frail we are and how, how we struggle in that. But God's kind of left it. He's handed it to us and said, this is yours now. You have to keep it going. you got to carry it forward. you got to remain strong. you got to be encouraged. You cannot give up. And you have to pass it along to subsequent generations. And for 2,000 years, the church has done that. And we can't stop now. Even though we may be discouraged, we cannot stop at all. You know, this time that we're living in is difficult, but it's temporary. It is a temporary time, and no one on earth is going to know when the world will come to an end, so we have to be prepared all the time, all the time. We all know, we all know how it is, right? We all know what it's like in college to cram because we didn't study all year long, and we tried right at the last day to try to get everything in. It doesn't work like that as a Christian. We have to be prepared all the time for his return. And Jesus talked about that. Today's going to be heavy on Scripture, I'll tell you. Last week was a little light. I told you why. Today it's going to be heavy. Nothing better than Scripture. I know it's right, everything it says. So, so I feel good about that. But I'm going to ask you to, to read a lot, of, a lot of Scripture this morning. And we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 24. It says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claim, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but in the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be <coughs> famines. <coughs> and earthquakes in various places, all these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the Lord and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The disciples wanted to know what's going to happen at the end of time. You know what? Today we have far more understanding of Jesus' plan than the disciples did because we have a, the benefit of looking back and seeing what he was saying and then looking forward to the church era, what's happened, the history of the church. At this point, the church hadn't even been started yet, hadn't even been born. But Jesus had spoken a lot about the kingdom of heaven to his disciples, and they had a lot of anticipation for the kingdom, and they also realized at some point he was going to leave, and then he was going to come back, and the timing was fuzzy like it is for us, but they longed to know more about him. So they asked him, Jesus, what's going to be the signs of the return? How will we know when it's close, when, when, when you might be coming back? So Jesus said, well, I, I can't tell you a great deal 
Let me say this. Be careful. Be wise. Be discerning. Because there are going to be false prophets and false teachings and deceivers. They're going to come in and they're going to mislead gullible people. And don't just believe everybody who says they have the truth. You test it with the word of God. That's why we have the scripture. But he said there's also going to be some signs, some things that you can kind of observe along the way. And he gives a list. Wars and rumors of wars. We got that going on, right, over in the Mideast already. We got the rumors of a war and almost a war, uh, Palestine and Israel. There's going to be conflict between nations. There's going to be earthquakes and famines. And there's going to be persecution of Christians. It's going to be a reality. We know that's true all over the world. Many will turn away from the faith. Many will fall away. In fact, the Bible says other places there'll be a great falling away. In fact, not just falling away, they will betray and hate other Christians. Is that happening in our world today? Absolutely, it is. There are going to be false prophets that are going to pop up and bring false messages and deceive a lot of people. The wickedness is going to increase. The love of many will grow cold. Christianity will be minimized in the public square And the gospel will have been preached in the whole world. And he said, when that happens, then the end will come. Now, we might ask the question, has all of that happened yet? And I would say, yes, mostly all of it has. The only thing we might question would be, has the gospel been preached in the whole world? You know, most scholars agree that the gospel has been preached in every nation. They note that there are some 7,400 people groups who are considered to be unengaged in the gospel due to less than 2% of them are believers. There's a lot to be done. But realistically, every nation on earth has had the gospel preached. Organizations like, like Joshua Project and Finish the Task, those two organizations, are working to assure that no one in the world dies without at least hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in a a major overview, probably all the prophecies that Jesus stated here in the Scripture have been fulfilled to some extent, paving the way for the Lord's return. So we can't just sit back and say, well, you know, there's a lot of things that have to happen before the Lord comes. That's not true at all. Nothing has to happen except the Lord come back in our day and age. we got to be aware of that, guys. It could be any moment. And, you know, the Bible says that there are scoffers who say, well, it's never happened yet, you know. That's absurd. No, it hasn't happened yet. God's been holding back, but it's going to happen someday. And we have to know that, anticipate that, and be prepared for that, and prepare the world to receive him. Jesus goes on to say, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Can you imagine information that's so tightly held that nobody up there knows but God? Only God knows the day that he'll say, Let it, turn it loose, guys. Let's go. Let's, let's end it all. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus talked about a thief in the night coming unexpectedly. Guys, we got to be alert and aware enough to know you're always prepared. You probably always lock your doors at night because you know a thief could come. Probably in the night. We got to be prepared for the Lord's return. Always doing, not doing the Father's work and the Father's will and continuing the mission of Jesus on the church. The mission, Jesus goes on to say just a little bit later in the same book of Matthew. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Jesus tells us that we need to be doing his work until he returns 
or until we die. And both of those things are certain. Every one of us are going to die. I'm going tomorrow uh, to Indiana to do a funeral for a man that was my, an elder in the church I served. He was a friend. He was a neighbor. He loved the Lord, but he died. And that's the story of every one of us. Or the Lord will come back. So there's no exemption. Nobody's going to miss that. Not only are it sure that you're going to die, it's sure that Jesus is going to come back. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, well, what happened? Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you who do not, you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Guys, we have got to realize, we, we, it's all vague what happens. Who cares what all happens around it? This is what's going to happen to us. Our loved ones are going to come back, be reunited with their physical resurrected bodies, and we're going to go and join them in the air. Encourage each other with these words. That's the victory of the church because those who are not a part of his church are not going to have that kind of experience. It's going to be a whole different thing for them. You know, we began this series by talking about the church being the bride of Christ. And it's kind of interesting how that wording and that analogy is used uh, throughout the Bible and, uh, and describing the relationship that Jesus has with the church. Jesus chose the church as his bride like a man would choose his bride. He died for the bride. He's preparing a home or a place for the bride in heaven. And one day he's going to come back to claim his bride to take us back to heaven to live. Now, guys, I want to say something here because I think maybe it's just screaming out. Some of you guys don't like to be thought about as a bride. I know that's true. You're like, ah, a little awkward. I'm not a bride. I'm a groom. Well, here's the thing. Don't be put off that analogy. That's not what it's about. This is a way just to explain how much you are loved by Jesus. So you love your bride like that. Like Jesus loved the church. In fact, that's what it tells us to do in Ephesians 5. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present him to her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's what I want to be to God. I want to be a part of his bride that one day he comes back to receive and takes him to himself. In the book of Revelation Revelation of Jesus as, as described to John chapter 19. It says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. There's going to be a wedding feast someday. And the church is going to be there in the presence of Jesus. We're going to be overwhelmed, overwhelmed. But that's our future. And I want to be there. I plan to be there. I hope you're there, every one of us. 
And I hope we take as many people as we possibly can with us. This is the future of the church. We know that we know the present is difficult. We know the future is uncertain. But if we are faithful and continue on, this is what we get to enjoy at the end. We don't know everything that could happen in the future. I don't understand all the coming events, you know, the uh, all the events of the return and all that activity. I don't get all that stuff. But the bottom lines are going to be with the Lord. And we're going to join in the wedding feast if we're part of the bride. You know, Jesus used this analogy a lot, and, and it kind of related to the customs of that day, which I think is interesting. You know, this is wedding season, right, uh, this time of year. But in that day, their wedding custom had three major parts. First of all, a man would choose his bride, or their families would say, you know, kind of an arranged-type marriage. But it was the, the man kind of got a, the, the stamp of approval. Not sure the woman always got that, but the guy did for sure. And so then they would sign a contract, and the groom would pay a dowry to the bride's family. So he would purchase the right to marry her. He didn't purchase her, but he purchased the right to marry her. And this was like their, our engagement today. And then the groom would go out, and he would prepare their home for an unknown period of time, you know. And uh, so he didn't give a date for the wedding. It was a little bit different. The bride didn't set it. The groom did in that point. And when he had prepared the home, he would lead a parade of family and friends to the home of the bride at midnight when she wasn't expecting. She probably knew the season of it, but, but she, he would end up there at midnight. And the bride and her bridesmaids would join the parade in honor, and then they would go up to their new home for the wedding ceremony and their feast. Now, that was the custom. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus told a parable he said, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. They began to wonder if he was ever going to come, right, like our earth is today. At midnight, though, the cry rang out, here's the broom, come and meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some oil, some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. There were some of the virgins, the bridesmaids, who were faithful and some were foolish. And it divides our world today. Our goal is to be those who are found faithful when the Lord returns. Those who are waiting, anticipating, and prepared for his return. That's the church, and that's who we have to encourage each other, <laughs> ourselves, pray for, build up, work, prepare, anticipate for the Lord's return. We want to be found faithful. Let me give you four really quick principles to follow that can help us on this journey. First of all, follow the example of the faithful. Guys, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're not trying to figure out what's going on. We have people who have gone on before that set the example for us. The apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
That's a bold statement to make. Probably a few of us would make that, but we ought to be able to say that. I'm not perfect. Paul admitted his own weakness, but he said, I'm setting an example for other people to follow. If you are a parent, a grandparent, you are following an example of some sort. Is it a faithful that's worth, an example that's worthy of being followed? Every Christian should be setting an example of faithfulness so that young Christians can see it. And younger Christians ought to be looking for mentors and teachers who are living out the Christian faith and follow their example. We've got plenty of examples in the Bible, but we've got living examples in our church. We have men and women who are loving the Lord and living for Him. They're not perfect. None of us are. But they're worthy of imitation. And if you're a younger Christian, you ought to find someone who is older and say, would you just invest in me? Would you give me some of your time? And, and, and i got a feeling they'll do that because we need to be pouring into the next generation. It's called disciple making, which is what Jesus said we're supposed to do. The second thing I want to encourage you is return to the truth of your past. You know, a lot of us were taught as children or in years past about Jesus, we grew up knowing these things. Maybe it moved you at some point to give your life to Christ, but time has a way of dimming those teachings and your enthusiasm, and you're not living the truth out that you have known as a young person. Not everybody had that advantage. I understand that, but a lot of people who have, have abandoned their faith. And so my message would be to you, if you knew the truth in the past, truth is unchanging. That's why they call it truth. It doesn't change with time, and we cling to that, and we anchor our lives to it, and we need to go back to the things that led us to Christ and refresh them in our mind and our actions and our heart and recommit to those things. Thirdly, proclaim the message of Jesus. Proclaim the message of Christ. The church's duty is to be the voice of God in our world. We are the voice of God. There's nothing else. God doesn't have a plan B. This is the only plan. You and I are the plan. And we're to be doing the, being the voice of God. Are you letting God speak through you? Is your life proclaiming the gospel to people? There are three things I want to encourage you to think about along the line of sharing your faith. First of all is urgency. Guys, I think we all struggle with this. We say, well, you know, first of all, if they want to know about Jesus, there's plenty of opportunity to do that. Or, you know, maybe somebody will do that, or maybe sometime it'll happen, but guys, there needs to be an urgency in our life, and our sharing, because opportunities come and opportunities go. And there are people that I have known that I thought someday, man, we're going to have a great conversation, and those people died, and they never had it with me. Hopefully, they had it with somebody else. I will deal with that, but are you urgent to help people and share the gospel? Secondly, consistency. Probably our greatest struggle, we're not very consistent, we're hot, we're cold, back and forth, we're in and out, and a lot of people, I know, vacillate more than others, but let's be consistent in this. And then the third is simplicity. I mean, sometimes we make the gospel so complex that nobody can understand it, and we don't even know how to, how to talk about it. The gospel is simple, easy to understand, easy to share. And we ought to be about that. In fact, I would say that every conversation that you have, you ought to be thinking about how to plant a seed. Every relationship that you begin, you ought to be thinking about how do I at least understand where they are with the Lord and how do I share my faith at some point, maybe not the first conversation in the relationship, but somewhere down, down the line, you've got to do that. And then the fourth thing I would encourage you is to maintain an honorable life, an honorable life. The Christian life is lived one day at a time. It is this moment that you can destroy your testimony. 
The world will push us to compromise. The world will push us to abandon the fight. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul. We think sometimes these words written to Timothy were just about preachers, right? You know, it's, we just commission a preacher and, and charge them. But it's to everyone in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Does that happen today? Absolutely. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me, or is in store for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward, award to me on that day, not only to me, but to everyone and all those who have longed for his appearing. Guys, the crown of righteousness is offered to everyone. Everyone. That was one of the awesome things that we covered, uh, I think it was last week or week before, about the church's beginning. It wasn't limited to a certain nationality of people or a group of people or race. It is for everyone. And that crown is before us that we can have. And that crown is everything because it's not just an award, it is our eternity. And that's so important. And every one of us are invited to receive the crown and become a part of Christ's church and to be with him in heaven one day. My question to you, will you be there? Will you be faithful? Will you raise your family, if you have a young family, will you raise your family to know the Lord? Will the circle be unbroken in heaven? Will you be there? You know, yesterday, Lori and I celebrated 39 years of marriage, which was pretty cool. I'll take that applause because it was well-earned, right, babe? It's not always been easy, all right? 39 years, and we're able to have that. Not everybody gets a chance to enjoy that. I know that. But our story is, has been a challenging story like most marriages have been, but we have, have committed to each other and we've worked through those things. And kind of like the, 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 the life that we live with Christ is challenging. Probably everybody's had moments in their life with the Lord that they've wondered, you know, can I, can I be faithful? And probably acknowledge that we haven't been as faithful to the Lord as we, as we could be and should be. There's been times that we've not always looked at the future and we've not always thought about what it means to be old together. Or maybe it's not always easy to think about in our relationship with the Lord what heaven might be like. But let me tell you that Jesus and the bride, the church, is the greatest love story ever. And we have to be faithful to him. And here's the amazing thing. It will end happily ever after. Happily ever after. And one of the really cool things about this funeral that I'm doing tomorrow, uh, this couple were married almost 60 years. I think it would have been 60 years in... Uh, uh, probably in July or something like that. Uh, but, but as the husband was fading, his wife, and they were good friends of ours, and so I could see her saying that, she said, you know what, you can go ahead and go. She said, I'm going to be along slowly. Just walk slowly, and I'll, I'll catch up with you. She said, but when you get there, save a place for me. 
And guys, I want to challenge you, not just in your marriage, but in our walk with the Lord. We want to think about saving a place for other people, and to do that, we have to prepare that now. Our own relationship with the Lord, our relationships with others, because one day we're going to be out of this place. It's going to be amazing, and we got to keep that in mind. We have to have an eye to the future, to what eternity will be like, victory. You see, sometime today, I think we believe that we're doing it all for God, and we're doing them some kind of favor by being faithful, but we're really, we can be a little selfish in this. We're doing it for ourselves. We want to honor God, but we want the blessing that God gives to us, and that's why we're faithful no matter what. We teach it, we preach it, we live it, we love it, we share it, and one day it's all going to be worth it. May the church be encouraged by these words.